0: Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In its 2014 report on global warming, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded that carbon dioxide emissions must fall by as much as 70% by mid-century to avoid the, quote, most severe, pervasive and irreversible damage from climate change. A key to reducing carbon emissions will be the near-complete decarbonization of the global electricity system, which is today's largest source of greenhouse gases and remains largely dependent on fossil fuels. Today's podcast takes a look at the cost of building a deeply decarbonized electricity system. We'll talk about the mix of energy resources that would make up such a system and the economic, political, and technological challenges that are likely to appear along the way. Today's guest is Jesse Jenkins, a researcher with the Electric Power Systems Center at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Jesse and a group of MIT engineers have modeled future electricity systems with a range of carbon footprints. They've determined the mix of low-carbon energy resources that will create tomorrow's most resilient, cost-effective, and low-carbon electricity systems. Their research is currently working its way through peer review and will be released later this year. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Jesse is a visiting scholar here at the Climate Center for Energy Policy. He is also former director of the Breakthrough Institute's Energy and Climate Program, where he led research into energy, climate change, and innovation policy. Jesse, again, welcome to the show. And I thought we'd start out, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your work on decarbonization of the grid and the group that you're working with at MIT.
1: Yeah, so I I had the pleasure to work with a tremendous group of colleagues at MIT, um, both from uh, the engineering side and from the economics side of the equation, um, as part of the Electric Power Systems Center at the MIT Energy Initiative, which is sort of the central hub for energy research at MIT. Uh, And as part of the campus's commitment to help uh, address the challenges posed by climate change, uh, the MIT Energy Initiative launched several low-carbon energy research centers in the last year. Most of those are focused on specific key technologies that might be essential to combating climate change, uh, like low-cost solar power, advanced energy storage, uh, next-generation nuclear power. Uh, And our center is sort of an integrative center focused on electric systems and how each of these components might interact in a future low-carbon economy. And so uh, we have worked on a variety of different research questions in in this particular paper uh, with a colleague Nestor Sepulveda um, uh, and several professors from the nuclear science and engineering department. We're looking at what different mix of resources might be required to reach deep decarbonization or greater than 90 percent reductions in CO2 emissions in the power sector, which is likely to be the linchpin for any efforts to confront climate change globally.
0: Uh, now, so we're going to be talking about decarbonization of the grid today. Could you define... What is a deeply decarbonized electricity system? Yeah, so overall, as
1: you mentioned in the intro, the IPCC and others that study efforts to um, slow and stop the impacts of climate change have concluded that greenhouse gas emissions from human causes need to decline by about 70% globally by mid-century. That's against the backdrop of a growing demand for energy, of course, as, um, as the you know global population grows to 9 or 10 billion people and as we fuel the aspirations of many billion more, more, um, And so that's an enormous challenge. And what it requires uh, is that for the developed world, we lead in, in emissions reductions. Um, uh, so that 70 percent target is global. The U.S. and other rich countries like that probably need to reach greater reductions really close to 80 or 90 percent economy wide by 2050. And if we're going to do that, we need to rely on the electric power system to cut emissions furthest and fastest of any sector Uh, And so most of the scenarios envision the power sector really being completely carbon-free by around 2050. Um, And that's what we call the deep decarbonization challenge. So we're on track for more modest reductions in the next 10, 20 years as part of our commitments uh, and other countries' commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement or um, other state efforts to reduce emissions here in the United States. But those are targeting maybe 10, 20, even 30 percent reductions in CO2. The deep decarbonization is about cutting emissions to near zero um, over the subsequent several decades.
0: Why is 2050 so critical? So 2050 is just sort of how the math works out. The
1: real challenge is the cumulative amount of CO2 emissions that we put into the atmosphere. Uh, CO2 resides in the atmosphere for really hundreds of years. There's some slow cycling of CO2 out of the air uh, into, um, you know, into oceans, into the biosphere, into weatherization, you know, weatherizing by rocks. But that process is very slow. And so for all intents and purposes on human time scales, the CO2 emissions are practically permanent. Um, they'll last for several hundred years. And so the challenge is limiting the total cumulative impact of, of those CO2 emissions. And the 2050 target is just sort of one of the points where uh, a maybe reasonable trajectory for cutting CO2 emissions might end up crossing that um, 70% reduction point. We could cut emissions faster if that were feasible or slower, um, but if we do that, uh, the per year annual reductions have to get steeper and steeper the, the longer and longer we wait to stay within that kind of carbon budget that we're allotted. I have to say we're not on track right now. We're falling behind. And so as I mentioned, every year we fall further behind. That implies either we're going to breach that budget and have a lower chance of keeping emissions uh, or warming below the sort of dangerous threshold that we've set out there, um, or we're going to have to accelerate our actions in the future. So whether it's 2050, 2040, 2070, the, the goal really is still going to be zero carbon for the power system, um, and we really need to get there as fast as is feasible.
0: And stating the obvious, the change is going to be dramatic, and it's going to have to happen quite quickly. Yeah, no exactly. I and mean, we've never
1: seen a pace of transformation of a major energy sector like this in the past on that time of, type of timescale. You know, the historical pace of energy transitions that have been driven by, um, you know, changes in technology, whether it was the steam engine or the internal combustion engine or electrification, uh, those processes tended to take, you know, almost a century to play out. And we really don't have that time, uh, you know, that luxury of time here to let the sort of natural transformation play out as technology improves and as market forces kind of drive it. And so – We depend on policy intervention to accelerate that process to drive us towards a lower carbon economy faster than would otherwise be the case.
0: Can you give us a snapshot? What does the deeply decarbonized electricity system look like and how is it fundamentally different from what we have today?
1: Yeah, so it will be different in a number of ways. I mean, the mix of resources that we'll rely on now will be a set of technologies that are all relatively marginal or or peripheral in the power system today. So today's electricity sources in the United States, for example, we get about a third of our electricity from coal. Uh, that's down from about 50 percent just, uh, you know, eight years ago. Um, but we also get about 30, 35 percent from natural gas now, which has taken a lot of that market share from coal. So we're still about 70, 75 percent fossil fueled, uh, small share in from oil, um, which has mostly been removed from power generation. And then we get about 20 percent of our electricity from nuclear and the remaining, you know, 10 percent or so comes from wind, um, uh, hydropower and, and, a, and a much smaller share from solar. In a deeply decarbonized economy, unless we can achieve, you know, real significant performance and cost improvements for carbon capture technology that would allow us to continue to use fossil fuels without uh, emitting CO2 into the atmosphere, that power system will look entirely different, basically inverted, where we might be able to rely on a little bit of natural gas, you know, for the most valuable time periods, but, um, you know, really can't afford too much emissions from uncontrolled gas plants. And instead, we'll be relying on wind and solar and nuclear power, geothermal, hydropower, the sort of technologies that are, um, you know, supplementary today will become dominant in that power mix. And what we are trying to explore in our study is what's the precise mix of those technologies that makes the most sense under different assumptions about how the future might evolve. And more importantly, since there's a lot of uncertainty, w- what can we say about the role that each of those technologies plays in the power system that's robust across, you know, a set of uncertainties that we might face about, you know, what solar power will cost in 2050 or what natural gas prices will be or whether we'll have a new generation of nuclear power plants on the market. I mean, these are all fundamental uncertainties. And so what we're trying to do is explore across a wide range of those uncertainties and understand um, what we can still learn from that that is, that is, you know, true across all of those different uncertain cases.
0: So you've got- a fundamental reworking of the electricity system, what is the cost of this going to be? And I know the cost is the very crucial part of your research as well.
1: Yeah, and and i just say the reason we care a lot about the cost of that transition is twofold. One, you know, there's a limited... Public willing to, willingness to pay or societal willingness to pay for mitigation efforts. You know, we only have so much, you know, budget to afford for these things, and it's competing against other important public priorities for how we spend our personal money or our public finances through the government. And so, you know, if, if the cost of decarbonization rises too steeply, it's very likely that we'll simply miss our targets and we'll, you know, slow down the pace of transition um, as we come up against those political constraints. So it's really important to find an affordable. Um, cost-effective route to reach these dramatic changes in the power system, and the second of all, if we fail to reach those costs, uh, those deep decarbonization goals in electricity, either affordably or um, or within the political kind of tolerance we have, that imperils overall economy-wide decarbonization efforts because most scenarios not only depend on the power sector going to zero emissions, it depends on the power sector electrifying a greater share of our other energy activities, whether it's heating or um, industrial energy inputs or transportation through electric vehicles. So, you know, electricity is a linchpin. And if it's, we can find an affordable way to do this and a feasible way to do this, then we can really uh, count on it to, to play that role in the, in the overall economy. And if we can't, then I think that our efforts to tackle climate change Maybe fundamentally imperiled. So we're really looking for that low cost, affordable way to get there. And what we find is it really depends on the mix of resources and whether we have the right balanced mix of technologies available that can play uh, each of the sort of three distinct roles in the power grid that we identify in our work.
0: It's, I think, important to note here that we're talking about a global transformation, not just here in the United States. So here, obviously, we have our legacy systems in place, but in developing countries, it may be a very different path and very different range of costs because they're starting more from a a lower level in terms of what they've got in terms of the electricity system. That's right. Um, I don't know if it's possible to put a price tag on this transformation here in the United States, but can you give some idea of what the cost may be relative to a business-as-usual case.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really is hard to say today because it depends fundamentally on how fast we see cost reductions for technologies like solar and wind power, um, lithium-ion batteries, all of which have become dramatically cheaper over the last few years, and there is expectation that they'll continue to decline in price over the next decade or two. And the question really is how far can those cost reductions go? And then simultaneously, those technologies are important pieces of a low-carbon mix, but they're not sufficient in our research to to cost-effectively reach zero carbon. And so we also depend on a class of resources we call flexible base resources, um, which are technologies that can operate more reliably, so on-demand generation of power, as opposed to the variability of wind or solar power. And can generate power or energy across much of the year as opposed to batteries, which are, you know, energy constrained. They only have a certain amount of energy they can discharge before they run out. So they're good for what we call fast bursts of power, fast burst resources, but not for providing a base of, you know, kind of nearly constant output. Uh, And so we need a set of technologies that can play that role. And the candidate list is pretty small and all of them face challenges today. That includes nuclear power which could operate much more flexibly than we have in the past. So traditionally, we run our power plants, our nuclear plants, you know, 24-7 at at 100% of their power because there's never been an economic or technical reason to ramp and change their output. In a low-carbon world with lots of wind or solar, that's different. So we do need to be able to operate those plants more flexibly. And indeed, that's technically feasible even with current designs, but especially for next-generation designs. We rely today on basically natural gas combined cycle power plants to play that role in a carbon-emitting way. In the future, if we can develop carbon capture and storage technologies, we could continue to use gas for that role, but that's dependent on fundamentally new technologies that are at maybe an initial demonstration phase today but are not commercially available at scale. Or it could depend on regionally specific renewable resources like geothermal energy, which if you're lucky enough to have it, like Iceland or the Philippines, or hydropower with large reservoirs like they have in Canada or Scandinavia or the Pacific Northwest. Um, but that's basically the list that we have, you know, kind of on the drawing board today. There are some next generation technologies that we should be investing in developing, but it's a small list and, you know, nuclear power has, has faced, you know, enormous headwinds to developing cost-effective new power plants. Carbon capture and storage is still nascent. So there's a huge uncertainty here about whether or not we can develop technologies that can play that role in a way that um, can help us meet those low-carbon goals cost-effectively.
0: So we have the goals, but the technologies may not be ready or economic at this point. Yeah. And, you know, what we
1: find in our work is that even if we used uh, nuclear power technologies like the um, Westinghouse AP1000 reactor that they're building in Georgia and Westinghouse just went bankrupt trying to build these plants. So really complicated, hard to build large scale facilities that were very expensive compared to, say, wind or solar plants that could provide the same amount of energy. What we find is that even if nuclear power is that expensive, it still shows up as part of a cost effective zero carbon mix. It doesn't show up until we get to those really strict emissions reduction goals when we really can't afford to use natural gas anymore. So for the near term, next 10 or 20 years, we can pair wind and solar and increasingly cheap lithium-ion batteries with natural gas power plants. And if those replace all of our coal plants, um, we can reach 60 or even 80 percent reductions in CO2 with that kind of set of available technologies. And that's good news, and we should be pushing ahead with those technologies today. But what we see in our work is an interesting inflection point, which is that once you move beyond, say, 70 or 80 percent reductions in CO2, you can no longer rely on those gas plants to play the flexible base role and to match the output, the variable output from wind and solar. You need something else, and it needs to look a lot like a natural gas plant to to substitute directly for it. And that's where even expensive nuclear power could play the role or a set of new technologies that we can move forward in the intervening 10, 20 years before we need them. Uh, and the the surprising piece of our work is that even if nuclear power is very expensive, you know, $120, $130 per megawatt hour, which is, you know, four times the current wholesale rate in most of the country, it still starts to dominate a low carbon mix because we need something that plays that role of a flexible base.
0: I thought that was very interesting in your research that when you approach zero carbon, these base, flexible base load generators, such as nuclear or potentially coal, or natural gas with carbon capture and storage actually become a bigger part of the resource mix than in a more moderately decarbonized system, as you point out in your research.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and even uh, another interesting thing we see is that the the biggest share from wind and solar, variable renewable resources, actually also occurs in that uh, more midterm emissions reduction range from 60 to 80 percent reductions. And then actually the share of wind and solar might decline as, you know, in the least cost mix as you move towards zero carbon. And there are some interesting reasons for that. So these are the kinds of complicated interactions between technologies, the substitutions, the complementarities that we can see in the kind of detailed power system modeling that we do, where we simulate the technical and engineering uh, constraints on power system, power plant operations and how they interact with each other and the economic contributions of each of these technologies to the, the electricity markets, um, we start seeing these you know, unpredictable dynamics where initially wind and solar have a higher and higher value in the low carbon mix because as we put a basically put a limit on CO2 in our models, that puts a shadow price on CO2 emissions. So every time you emit CO2, you get closer to that limit, and that makes CO2 a scarce resource in the in the grid. And so every time we use a natural gas plant, we have to factor in our, you know, eating up of that carbon budget. And so that raises the cost of operating gas plants. And wind and solar act really uh, effectively as a fuel-saving resource. When they're available, when you have a lot of wind power, a lot of solar power, you can reduce the output from your natural gas plants and save the fuel and the carbon emissions from those power plants. So mostly what we see is that wind and solar act as fuel savers in the mix. And that can be valuable in a power system with a lot of natural gas and particularly with a lot of natural gas under a carbon price or carbon constraint. As we move towards the zero carbon mix and nuclear or other low carbon technologies displace those gas plants, the fuel saving value of the wind and solar actually decline. So if you're displacing a coal plant or a gas plant that's emitting CO2, you have a high value for displacing the fuel and the carbon. If you're displacing nuclear, which has a very low fuel cost and no carbon emissions, now each megawatt hour of wind or solar is worth a lot less in the overall mix. So these are these really interesting interactions that we start to see. And so we end up seeing the share of wind and solar increase in some cases all the way up to 70, 75 percent of our energy in a 60 or 80 percent decarbonized context. And then they fall as nuclear takes over to maybe more like 30 to 50 percent of the mix in a zero carbon context, depending on the different combinations of costs, we assume.
0: You really drive home, again, the point that this is about the lowest possible cost system. And there was a, an example that you gave um, in, in, the, in the paper uh, or that's actually in the works at this point, if I can go ahead and talk yeah, about one more point, um, that I thought was very illustrative of, of this whole issue. And you said that if you were to create or if we were to create as a society a, re- a, a low-carbon or zero-carbon electricity system, it would require to s- – seven. 12 times total peak capacity to serve load. In comparison, if you mix in nuclear and whatever else you have, it's much more right-sized to the actual load that we have on the grid. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this is,
1: uh, you know, what I call the sort of two-sided variability challenge that you get from resources like wind or solar that um, have a variable output. I mean, it's dependent on the weather patterns, on the availability of sun and wind. And so if you're trying to meet our primary energy needs with just wind or solar or, you know, run a river hydro plants that vary, you know, in the seasons based on rainfall, you have to deal with variability on all kinds of timescales. Very short timescales when, you know, this cloud passes over or the wind uh, changes, you have to have enough short-term flexibility uh, of power plants that are—or storage resources that are online and can kind of make up for those quick changes and then you need daily, you know, flexibility as you see these sort of daily diurnal patterns in wind power and solar power output, and you need seasonal or even weeks long, um, you know, uh, sources of variability or flexibility to deal with the seasonal changes in the sun. Obviously, in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, as long as you're away from the equator, you get huge changes in solar output throughout the year. And wind power, even, you get these sort of weeks-long lulls in wind output where you have a high-pressure front that sits across a whole region, and it might be very little wind output across the entire American eastern, you know, east coast or something. And so in a system where we're dominated, you know, dominated by variable renewables, we have to be able to ride through all of those periods without very much wind or solar. And so in order to do that you might need to build many more times the amount of wind or solar capacity that you need to meet to increase your output during the periods when you get the least power production from a given wind farm or solar panel. So we call this the capacity factor, which is the percentage of your maximum rated power output that is supplied um, on average by a technology or in a particular time period. And so for solar, you might see a capacity factor across the year of something like 25 to 30%, less if you're in the north, you know, more in the south. For wind... Historically, we've been about a 35% capacity factor, which means if you put in 100 megawatts of wind, on average, it generates about 30 or 35 megawatts of power of energy across the year. That's getting higher and higher as we develop better, bigger wind turbines. So now we're talking about maybe 40 or even 45% averages. But that varies from hour to hour and year to year. So there are going to be time periods when you're generating at your maximum and time periods when you're generating at near your minimum, and that means that in hours when you don't have very much wind or solar, you know, say you only op- operate on average at 10% of your capacity factor, now you need 10 times the capacity to meet you know, one megawatt of demand in that time period. The flip side of that variability coin is that now go to a period when you're operating your maximum capacity factor and you've built 10 times as much capacity, now you have 10 times as much energy as you need in that hour. So we have to deal with simultaneous surpluses of large amounts of overgeneration of power that either has to be stored in storage devices or wasted, curtailed, um, and, and put to no use. And we have to deal with periods of, of, of deficit when we don't have enough wind or solar output, and we need to draw down our energy storage devices to make uh, the way through those periods. And what that means is that we have to install a lot more megawatts of capacity than we actually are going to use at any given time.
0: With the renewables.
1: With the renewables and storage to be able to produce a lot more solar and wind when we have the resources, dump it into a whole bunch of energy storage, so have the power capacity from storage devices to charge when the wind is, you know, screaming and the solar is is available at, you know, 1 p.m. on a summer day. And then we got to hold on to all that and use it in periods when we don't have enough wind or solar. And so what we see in our mix is that leads to a huge overbuilding of capacity where, you know you have to build 3, 5, even 10, 12 times as much capacity um, as the peak demand in the system to be able to get through all of those variations and, and output throughout a year. In contrast, today, we don't depend on variable resources for that much output. We use the flexibility of, you know, fossil fuel plants to ramp up and down their output throughout the year. And that means we don't need very much more capacity than our peak. We need a little bit more in case power plants fail, in case we have some wind or solar variability. But our our total mix might be, you know, 20 percent or 30 percent over our peak capacity as opposed to three or five or 10 times more.
0: Jumping now to the economic and political considerations that this all or issues that this this raises, There's a fundamental tension here. Uh, Energy companies, investors make decisions based upon discrete projects and what makes sense for the foreseeable future, whereas this type of electricity system is going to require a longer view, a more holistic view uh, of of this. How do we make investments today with that long-term goal in mind? Yeah, this is a big challenge, and there's really
1: sort of two fundamental approaches to doing this. um, And we actually see both of these things in U.S. markets today. The historical way to do this was through vertically integrated regulated utilities, right? So we have monopoly utilities that were in charge of the whole system from generation to transmission and distribution to selling retail electricity to customers. And actually in much of the country, about 40 percent of our electricity, I think, is still served by vertically integrated either monopoly and private utilities or municipally or publicly owned um, monopolies. And in those contexts, we most of those utilities go through long-term resource planning processes, where they say, "Look, you know, we're going to make an investment in a power station. It's going to last thirty to fifty years. So we got to think about not just what the market conditions look like today, but what they might look like over the thirty or fifty years of that power plant, and how that fits in the rest of our portfolio. And you know, different utilities, different states, different contexts do this better than others. Some have a longer-term, you know, more thoughtful view, than and some have a more short-term, you know, risk, risky, um, you know, risk-tolerant view." But at least there's sort of a fundamental planning process that goes on. And, and in those kinds of contexts, you can think about, OK, well, we, we have this long-term transition. We need to think about how we're going to get there. We need to think about the role of each technology. You can have a more planned process. So that's the kind of regulated monopoly planning-centric way to go. In about 60 percent of the countries, or at least our electricity supply is served by um, states that have deregulated and made competitive electricity generation. We still have monopoly utilities in charge of transmission and distribution networks, the wires companies, but generation and in some cases even retail supply are competitive. And so we have markets that are driving these investment decisions, and those tend to deliver more short-term signals. So people are willing to make investments when there's a near-term expectation of profit. Um, And what we need in those contexts are policies that align the market revenues and the market expectations with the long-term transformation of the power system that we need from a public policy perspective. There's different ways to do that. You know, economists prefer pricing carbon, the externality, you know, and the damages caused by carbon pollution or CO2 emissions – you know we can if we put a price on that that equaled the damage that that causes to society then you know markets would internalize that damage and say it's you know it's it's more cost effective if i adopt technologies that don't emit co2 in practice it's pretty difficult politically to put a high price on carbon and so we have a lot of an increasing number of places that do have some price on carbon but it's not as high as most economists envision when they think about it you know, being the primary driver of change but we also have a number of other policy measures like low-carbon uh, requirements for generation. Um, renewable portfolio standards are the most common in the U.S. I think the majority of states have some kind of renewable portfolio standard that requires utilities to steadily increase the share of their energy from, uh, from various renewable resources. We could make that a broader mechanism, a low-carbon portfolio standard or a clean energy standard that included things like nuclear or carbon capture or, or other low-carbon resources. And steadily ratcheted up the requirements on utilities to buy that kind of power. And then that would send a steady market signal to investors that if you invest in low carbon, there's an, um, not only a market for you today, but an increasingly large market for you over time as those requirements ramp up. So some states have done that. The federal government's debated it over time, um, but so far hasn't implemented anything like that in the US. Europe has various requirements like this. Um, and so there are, you know, different countries are taking different approaches to trying to harmonize the market with the public policy uh, imperatives that we also have.
0: You hit on a carbon price, and it doesn't look like we're going to get one at this point, but um, would a sufficiently high carbon price just automatically grease this process and get us to where we need to be? And what what might the social cost of carbon, the price, be on that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in theory, a carbon price that's sufficiently high will, um, you know, make fossil generation that doesn't capture its CO2 emissions more expensive. That'll make renewables and nuclear and other low carbon technologies more cost competitive. And if that carbon price is high enough and is expected to rise over time, then you would expect, expectate, you know, uh, investors to start moving towards lower carbon technologies. Um, uh, what we see is, you know, in a lot of studies is that you would need a carbon price that's quite a lot higher than what we see in, in most programs in the world. You know, probably would need to start on the order of 40 or $50 per ton of CO2 and then rise over time, maybe even to $100, somewhere in that range. Um, in practice, what we see through most of the world are carbon prices in a lot of different jurisdictions, including the Northeast Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, Um and the California cap and trade program in the U.S., but also other programs like the European emissions trading system, carbon prices are more like 5 to $15 per ton. So they tend to be a lot lower than uh, is necessary to drive this transition. And for various political economy reasons, there's been much more political support for direct subsidies or requirements to purchase clean energy sources that have a much higher effective subsidy value or carbon, you know, shadow carbon price. Um, in terms of increasing the competitiveness of those technologies. And so what I think is most likely in the short term is a combination of a low carbon price that raises revenues that we can use to invest in and subsidize the kinds of low carbon generation we need to purchase to transition over time. Um, And steadily that subsidy could decline as the carbon price rose over time and as the share of our energy from fossil fuels declined, the impact of the carbon price would get smaller and smaller on the economy. Um, but I don't think it's going to be likely that we're going to put a 50 or $100 per ton price on carbon in place anytime soon.
0: Jumping ahead or to, to other resources, um, distributed energy resources such as solar, demand response, and as you've mentioned already, storage. Mm-hmm. What is the role of these resources in this very decarbonized system of the future?
1: Yeah, this is a great question, and it's one that a lot of the sector's grappling with now as we see smaller-scale, more distributed resources become more cost-competitive and available. Um, What we find in a low-carbon context is that Demand flexibility, the ability to say have a f- smart thermostat that can shift when you heat or cool your building by a few hours while still maintaining the indoor temperature that you you know desire, or flexible charging of your electric vehicle. You know, you need to be able to go to work in the morning, but you know, you're plugged in for twelve hours, you don't exactly care when you charge as long as you have enough Um, energy in the battery when you get up in the morning, those kinds of sources of demand could become very flexible under, you know, information and communications technologies that could control or signal when it's cost-effective to charge um, or use electricity. And those technologies, that demand flexibility actually competes directly with energy storage. And um, maybe biogas in combustion turbines as a peaking resource or a fast burst resource. So when electricity is really dear and expensive and our demand is high uh, or our wind or solar output is low, it might make a lot of sense to shift demand out of those time periods to periods when we have more uh, low cost energy available. And that effectively acts like virtual energy storage. You, know, you could shift your demand by changing when you charge your vehicle, or you could actually shift your demand by charging a storage device and then discharging it at times of high prices. So those two technologies tend to compete directly with one another in the fast-burst category of resources that we see. And then distributed solar, interestingly enough, competes directly with utility-scale solar. You know, for not surprising reasons, they tend to have the same similar output patterns for when they generate electricity. And so, if you have more low cost solar power coming out from distributed resources, that reduces the economic value, all else equal, of uh, utility scale solar that produces at the same time. And so, we see this trade off or competition between large scale solar stations would tend to be cheaper. Per unit. In fact, in the US, a utility scale solar farm that's in the you know, 20, 50, 100 megawatt scale might be um, a half to even a third the cost of a rooftop solar system. Um, And so it's maybe more cost-effective to go big and build large-scale solar systems. On the other hand, distributed solar systems might, if they're producing at the right times, reduce our need to expand distribution or transmission networks, reduce losses to deliver power from power stations into where we consume it because they generate power locally. And that has an added value, what I call a locational value in my research. And so there's this interesting trade-off now between where... Uh, locations where you have a high enough locational value from network, you know, avoiding network costs or losses, that it's worth building a more expensive, smaller scale system, as opposed to a larger scale, uh, cheaper utility scale system. So there's a trade-off here between economies of unit scale, which argue for building larger scale power plants, solar batteries, or other things, and um, and locational value, which argues for building smaller, more distributed, modular systems that are located at the high value parts of the grid. The likely outcome is that because locational value eventually gets saturated, if you build enough solar systems or storage systems in a congested or high-loss portion of the grid, those losses go away, those congestions get relieved, um, and that locational value falls. We probably only want a limited amount of distributed storage or distributed solar located at the most valuable parts of the grid. And after that locational value is exhausted, it probably makes more cost-effective sense to build mostly larger scale um, solar storage installations that have those economies of scale.
0: It's fascinating the thought of how we're going to get again to these whole systems. And one of the issues you also bring up is the issue of lock-in. Okay, so if you're making uh, investment decisions in whatever the resource mix may be or the individual resources, if you're thinking of the midterm, you actually may make those investments in a way that makes it harder to reach decarbonization, excuse me, in the long term. And and one of the examples uh, is California, which is going all in on renewables right now and also aggressively pursuing storage. Are they locking themselves into a situation where the more aggressive goals may actually be more expensive to achieve because of what they're doing now?
1: It's possible. Um, What we see in our research is that it's not a straight line path from here to zero carbon that it's actually there are nonlinear you know, changes, so steep changes across the, the path. There are um, what we call non-monotonic changes, the so things that increase and then decrease or decrease and then increase. So it's not just a straight line trajectory, and we can't necessarily proceed you know, myopically where we you know just move forward for the next five or ten years in a kind of short-sighted way and then reevaluate where we are and then go another five or ten years because the choices we make now have path dependencies. So let's think about two concrete examples of that. The first is, as I mentioned, we could reach 60 or 80% CO2 reductions just with wind and solar and natural gas. And those are all very cost-effective resources in the United States today. We could cost-effectively replace our old coal fleet with you know, new gas plants or increasing the output from existing gas plants and then pair that with wind and solar, that, which reduces our need for gas whenever those resources have a lot of output. Um, and that could get us pretty far, even to our 2030, 2035 kind of goals that we've set for, um, CO2 reductions, even in places like California, which are, uh, trying to very aggressively cut CO2 emissions. So they have a goal of 40% reductions below basically 2020, um, by 2030, which is a, you know, dramatic acceleration of, of their emissions reductions, uh, and really in line with what everybody should be trying to do to, to reach the kind of low carbon, um, objectives that, that, you know, the world really has, uh, should be committed to, um, so if we targeted that 2030 goal and said we're going to get there with a lot of new gas plants and a lot of wind or solar, that would entail two things. One, we're going to build out a bunch of natural gas infrastructure, new pipelines, you know, new gas wells to supply that, new gas power plants that might last for 30 or 40 years, um, and expect those to – you know, people that invest in those resources or those long-lived infrastructure assets are going to expect them to be around and make money over the long term. And we're going to invest in a lot of variable wind and solar resources. We may even push their share to 70 percent of our mix um, as we go along in that context. Then as we move to zero carbon, we have to simultaneously phase out all of those gas plants and replace them with something that's zero carbon, nuclear gas with carbon capture or hydro or something else, which would strand all of those infrastructure investments that we made to support our gas fleet. And because we're displacing expensive natural gas with a lower cost fuel like nuclear or hydro or geothermal, we now have less get less value from our big fleet of wind and solar plants. And we may not want to, re you know, recommission all of those. We may need to shut some of those down. Um, and so those are examples of where we could overbuild, you know, the kind of infrastructure that we would want to get to 60 percent carbon reduction that we don't need in a zero carbon world, that we don't need all of the wind or solar. And we certainly can't use the natural gas. And then there's another challenge, which is that if we— don't invest now in developing the kinds of flexible base technologies that we would want in a zero-carbon world. They simply won't be available when we need them. These technologies don't come out of nowhere. You know, it took decades of sustained public support and private sector innovation to bring solar power and wind power down to the prices they're at now where they're actually – you know cost-competitive, legitimate contributors to our energy mix. And the same is true for shale gas and our abundant supplies of natural gas. The U.S. government supported um, unconventional gas extraction technologies for decades, both through R&D efforts and through early subsidies for the first non-conventional gas producers, um, including Mitchell Energy, which eventually unlocked the shale um, boom. And so in that lasted for 20-something years before the kind of quote-unquote shale revolution swept across the country. It wasn't just – it didn't come about in 2005 out of nowhere. It was actually the result of 20 years of sustained investment. And so if we need a certain set of technologies to be available and cost competitive in 2030 or 2035 or 2040, we sure as hell better be investing in them today or they're not going to be there and they're not going to be ready. And so all of those things require us to look forward and look ahead at what we're going to need in the end and not just sort of move incrementally along the way.
0: And the crazy irony here is we need baseload, right? We need flexible baseload. Prior to this podcast, I was thinking about the recent uh, DOE Noper for uh, you know resiliency Noper for base capacity supporting coal, supporting nuclear. We don't need it. It looks like for resilience, but we do need it. To achieve the lowest cost, cleanest energy system. Yeah, well, we need
1: our low carbon, flexible base resources. So they, it's not that we need technologies that run twenty four seven to meet the base load. So that that term base load is thrown around a lot, but what it means is basically that if you think about the variation in demand throughout the year and not throughout the seasons, you know, we have our highest demand periods usually in the summer on an afternoon when everybody's got their air conditioners on, and you know, it's uh, demand is high sometimes in the winter when in, in systems that have uh, winter heating with electricity. And then, you know, maybe on a warm spring day and Sunday, you know, the demand is the lowest when, you know, people just have their windows open and they're not at work and lights aren't on. That lowest level of demand might be about half of the peak demand or something like that, but it's not zero. And so there's this sort of invariant level of, of base demand that's always there in our current system. And it's economical to operate power plants that have a high fixed cost and a very low fuel or variable cost 24 7 to meet that base load. So traditionally, we've operated coal, nuclear, and hydro plants as base load resources to do that. It's because it made sense economically. Um, And based on the kind of technology characteristics, the cost structure of those those resources in a world with lots of variable renewable resources. Now it's not the base level of demand that sets the need for that minimum level of output. It's actually the net demand. So the demand minus the availability of wind or solar output. And that might occur at a different time, and it might be a lot lower than our current base demand and so we need flexible base resources they still provide the foundation or the base of our energy system in, in in our modeling results but they're more flexible they operate more nimbly than we traditionally operate our base load resources so they can ramp up or down on a daily cycle to make room for a lot of solar power during the middle of the day or a you know wind power at night um, but they uh, can operate reliably and across the whole year and The DOE proposal to support coal and nuclear was really about um, insulating those technologies from competition from cheap natural gas, which is driving coal and nuclear plants uh, out of the market today. And the reality is that we don't really need coal or nuclear for pure resiliency reasons. The argument that DOE laid out was that because these these technologies have fuel on site – you know, they've got nuclear you know, fuel rods. They've got coal piles on site that they're somehow more resilient against, you know, disruptions to supply chains and things like that. And that may be true in a place like New England where we're on the end of a natural gas pipeline and constraints in that pipeline might limit our availability to get gas. But for most of the country, we really don't uh, need to worry too much about relying on natural gas for reliability reasons because it's a very reliable, flexible resource. And so uh, it will play that flexible base role for the near term. And what we need is a low-carbon, flexible-based technology. And so the reason we want to support maybe nuclear power, for example, is not because of its resilience in the face of storms or something like that today. That's an ancillary benefit. But because it's one of the few scalable, low-carbon, flexible-based technologies that we have available. And that's a very different argument than the one that Secretary Perry and the Department of Energy put out. And it actually explicitly decouples the reason to support nuclear from the reasons you might support coal, which I think is an important distinction to be made.
0: One final question for you, where do you think we'll really be in 2050? So, I mean, it's, it's really
1: hard to say because it depends on two fundamentally uncertain factors. It depends on how technology changes, which, as we know, I mean, who would have predicted how, you know, what the price of solar panels would be or, you know, go back 10 years, who would have predicted that we'd all have smartphones with supercomputers in our pockets? I mean, there's these un- fundamental uncertainties around the pace of technological change. And what we tend to do as humans is we tend to underestimate Uh, long-term change in technology and overestimate short-term change. And that's because that change tends to be nonlinear. It tends to follow some kind of exponential or logarithmic curve. Um, And so in the short term, we estimate it to be linear and we underestimate the beginning of that curve. uh, And so it ends up being slower than we think. But in the long term, that exponential or logarithmic trend outpaces the linear trend. And so it's really hard to say. I mean, 20 years, uh, 30 years from now, We could have a whole different suite of technologies available that could change the options uh, at play. And that's why in our work we try to model that sort of fundamental uncertainty by spanning across a whole wide range of technology costs, uncertainties about whether they're available or not, and see what, what robust truths we can discover even in that case. But the second uncertainty, which is fundamental, is what will be the political will to drive this transition with policy? You know, no one predicted that Donald Trump would be elected in 2016, um, and that fundamentally changed changed the political landscape in the country. You know, how many more of those uncertain political moments will the will there be between now and 2050? So it's really hard to say exactly where we'll be. Um, I think that we there's reason for optimism in the long term because of that sort of accelerating technological you know change that I talked about, um, and because I think there's a growing awareness that climate change is not a distant threat. It's an immediate impact today, and we see it all over the country every year, whether it's the wildfires across the American West this year and the resulting mudslides in Santa Barbara County this year, or it's, um, you know, the, the bomb cyclone winter storm that just hit the northeast. You know, it was a, a strong but not particularly, um, you know, abnormal winter storm that happened to hit Boston and, and New England at high tide, and we had widespread coastal flooding because of it. If sea level rises is going to increase that uh, base level of of the sea, you know, those kinds of high tide flooding events are going to become regular. And that's where the bulk of our population lives along either seaboard. And so, you know, we're starting to see these impacts all around us. And I think it's starting to become clear to more and more people that this is not normal. This is the kind of impacts that we have been predicted for a decade or more would become more severe and more exacerbated by climate change. And I hope that over time that's going to encourage us to take a serious look at how we transition more rapidly towards technologies that are not only going to help us reduce um, CO2 emissions, but are also going to reduce air pollution, which still kills more than 10,000 Americans every year from power plant air pollution. They're going to, you know, clean up the air, reduce asthma cases, reduce hospitalizations. Um, They're going to reduce our dependence on volatile fossil fuel prices. You know, there's a whole bunch of of, uh, corresponding benefits to this transition. They're going to increase our um, use of American energy from wind and solar and nuclear power. These are sort of win-win-win situations if we start to move in this path. And as these technologies become cheaper and cheaper, I think that will accelerate the transition. But we really need proactive policy to drive the beginning of that process today. And that, I think, is the fundamental uncertainty that we face at the moment.
0: Jesse, thanks for talking. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Today's guest has been Jesse Jenkins, visiting scholar at the Climate Center for Energy Policy and a researcher with the Electric Power Systems Center at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. For more insights into energy policy and for updates on research and events from the Climate Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed at Climate Energy or visit our website climateenergy.upen.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now. Have a great day.